Welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com. I'm your host, Todd Curtis. Today's episode features an interview I had on the 24th of July, 2014, with CJAD Radio of Montreal, Canada. We discussed a number of issues, including the recent loss of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 and the disappearance of an Al Algeri flight over Western Africa, which happened only a few hours before this interview. This morning, the USA has lifted its ban on flights into Tel Aviv's Ben-Gurion airport after extending it yesterday in light of the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas and the risk of passenger planes being shot down over yet another active war zone. Canada followed suit, canceling a flight that was scheduled to leave at 6 last night. But there are those who are outspoken in their opposition to this ban, most notably former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, who made quite a fervent statement how he felt it was a mistake and was not afraid to fly into what he categorized as one of the safest airports airports in the world from a security standpoint. To give us some clarity on this volatile issue, we turn now to an aviation safety analyst from airsafe.com. Todd Curtis joins me now. Good morning. Uh, Good morning to you. Todd, uh, the ban might have been lifted this morning, but it was not without its critics over the day and a half it was in place. Uh, What did you make of the ban when you first heard about it? When I first heard about it, I thought it was a prudent action. There had been a rocket that landed within a mile of the airport. And it was unclear whether or not the uh, various defenses that Israel had around the airport would have been sufficient to catch other rockets that were incoming. So out of an abundance of caution, uh, banning flights until the situation was stabilized seemed reasonable. Uh, But is there not a possibility that a rocket just like that might might land again in, in a similar location? It's indeed possible. But I'd like to believe in there's no confirmation officially of this for some obvious reasons, that the various military and intelligence organizations in the U.S. and Israel have assessed this situation and are advising the civil aviation authorities. So the FAA, they made the right decision to ban it and the right decision to reinstate it? Given the amount of information the day of the ban, yes. And it would appear that they've gotten either additional information or uh, other proof that it's no longer as risky and they've resumed flights. What is the general policy uh, when it comes to airports that are in a war zone? I'm thinking about the airports in Kabul or in Damascus, for instance. Well, with respect to the FAA, they have a number of advisories uh, active for any number of places around the world where they either have a general advisory for people not to travel or they may issue specific guidance to airlines saying they can or cannot fly in certain areas or in certain countries. Now that the ban is uh, lifted, it's up to the individual airlines uh, to decide if they're going to resume flights or not. What do you expect them to do? Well, the airlines will assess their situation uh, individually. Uh, they have to consider their own needs. And and frankly, they, there may be some economic incentives as well. For example, the individual insurers of those airlines may have rules in addition to the FAA that may make it and not very viable for them, to fl- for them to fly in some places. I've got an interesting text from someone called Sam. He says, ask your guests the following. If the FAA did not limit air traffic to Ben-Gurion during the Gulf War when Iraq launched Scud missiles at Israel, why did they limit it now? I remember being escorted by F-15s when we departed during the Gulf War. Well, that's an interesting question, and that's something that I would hope that the FAA would be a bit more transparent about. Their decision-making process to determine whether an area is or is not Uh, too risky to fly in. Do we know what kind of political influences are exercised on the FAA? Well, as a policymaking organization, they have normal political influences with respect to various uh, 
stakeholders wanting to have certain outcomes. But in the near term, when it comes to policies, when it comes to risk and safety, uh, they tend to uh, make decisions based on uh, facts and data and not political considerations, such as whether or not this will embarrass a particular government. Todd Curtis is my guest, is an aviation safety analyst from airsafe.com. We just heard about another plane that, that's disappeared from radar this morning. Some reports saying that it has crashed with 116 people on board an Air Algeria flight uh, 5017. Uh, people are thinking this is a more frequent occurrence. How, how safe are the skies right now? The skies, as they have been for quite a few years, is relatively low risk. Now, I hesitate, I, I hasten to add that when it comes to the word safe, safe isn't something that's objective. Safe is a, is a subjective condition. Does the risk seem acceptable to a person or a group? If it seems acceptable socially and otherwise, then it's safe. But as far as risk, the risk as in deaths per million flights or however one wishes to measure this is very, very low in aviation and has gotten consistently lower, lower over the last few decades. Do we have any idea what might have happened to this Air Algeria flight at this point? It's unclear. There's some reports coming out saying that, uh, in fact, from the uh, Algerian government, I believe, saying that the last contact with the aircraft was a request by air traffic control for it to change course due to weather conditions. And reportedly, there were some major sandstorms in the area, but it's unclear if weather had anything to do with the fact that this aircraft is missing. How easy is it to down an aircraft? Well, it depends on the capabilities that one has and the dedication that uh, one has to take down an aircraft. If you have equipment that's available only to, to governments, for example, a surface-to-air missile battery system such as the one suspected in the downing of flight uh, MH17, then it's relatively easy to bring down an aircraft. Uh, those systems can take down an aircraft that's that fly far higher than commercial airliners and that fly fa far faster than commercial airliners. If you're talking about equipment that might be available to, commonly in available in, in to insurgents around the world, your shoulder-fired surface-to-air missiles, then it's relatively more difficult. Your questions for Todd Curtis. He's an aviation safety analyst. You can text your question to 514-800. What should travelers be asking airlines before booking an international flight? I mean, usually we don't think to ask about anything, but now is there any questions we should be asking about the flight path? Well, certainly there are several questions that a passenger could ask. One of the basic ones being, what's your policy for canceling my ticket? Should this be a, for reasons because uh, there's high risk in an area? Some airlines may not give you a refund if you say, you know what, it seems to be too risky. I'd like to cancel my flight and fly later. They may, they may or may not give you a refund. A more general question you may ask is, is this aircraft or this airline flying over an area that I don't feel comfortable with? For that answer, one can go to any number of online resources, online flight tracking websites, where you can basically do a search. Has that particular flight in the past few days flown over areas that you don't like? Now, one of the former mayor, Bloomberg, who went to Tel Aviv, who flew to New York, uh, uh, flew from New York to Tel Aviv via El Al, uh, he categorized Ben Gurion Airport as one of the safest airports in the world from a security standpoint. Would you agree with his assessment? I would very much agree with that because of the unique situation uh, that airport has been in for 
generations, uh, they have a level of security when it comes to screening passengers, when it comes to defending against various attacks uh, that's uh, unmatched anywhere in the world. What measures are we going to see airlines adopt based on some of uh, what we've seen in the last few days? I think that what may be adopted wouldn't necessarily be on an airline level, but more more on an industry level. I believe that, especially with the case of MH17, one question that will have to be addressed is the decision-making process used by various air traffic control organizations to determine whether or not it's safe to fly in a particular area. If you have any questions for our guest, Todd Curtis, uh, he's with airsafe.com, an aviation safety analyst. Uh, how do we know if we're flying over a war zone? Are the airlines going to be forthcoming in, in giving this information to passengers? Uh, not necessarily, in part because it's not the airline's uh, duty to do that sort of thing. Uh, airlines have to operate under a civil aviation authority in their nation. And typically that nation would have directives or guidance as far as where to fly and where not to fly. Uh, some nations like the U.S. have a rather extensive uh, open policy of posting that information online. So you can actually go to the FAA website and find the section where they say, here are the warnings we have for various countries around the world. And you can see what the policy is in black and white. With all of the aviation stories in the news, if you have any questions for aviation safety analyst Todd Curtis from airsafe.com, join the conversation. Text your question, your comments to 514-800. Sometimes controversial, always compelling. The Tommy Schnermecker Show on News Talk Radio, CJAD 800. Lots of questions coming in. Uh, Matt wants to know, what's your opinion about the missing Malaysian airline? How can it be missing and can't be found given the technology we have to trace it? Well, although there's uh, substantial technology for, to, for finding aircraft in flight, much of that technology was literally turned off or somehow not operating at the time this flight was uh, still airborne. And fortunately, there's a lot of supplemental technology that was brought to bear on the situation where they have... Uh, narrowed the search to, unfortunately, something the size of the nation of Norway in an uncharted area of the Indian Ocean. But there is a rather uh, systematic plan in place to both map the bottom of that ocean and to start searching for the aircraft. And the Australian government is leading that, and they'll start in earnest on that uh, the first of the month. This texture wants to know what you think uh, happened to the flight, to MH Flight 370. Well, uh, there's rather scant amounts of information about the flight that was transmitted before it disappeared. And based on that very little information, I propose there were four general scenarios uh, where individual or in combination, something might have happened to the airplane, uh, a hijacking by an outsider, a uh, hijacking by an insider, system failures on the aircraft that led to both uh, systems not operating and the crew doing whatever they had to do to keep the airplane flying. And fourth, somehow or another, the crew was either unable, incapacitated, or unwilling to make any changes to the flight path after a certain point in the flight. And in thinking about this for the last few months, I think it might have been a combination of those four that occurred on this flight. What do you think the FAA could uh, do to improve what it does? I think the trend that has been happening over the last few decades, since basically the beginning of uh, widespread use of the Internet should continue. That is, they should continue to be very open and transparent about not only what their policies are, but the process by which they make those decisions. 
And I think that speaking about the uh, what happened with MH17, uh, it may not be an FAA decision-making issue as much as it was a Euro control decision-making issue, which is the Air Traffic Control Organization for Europe. But what the FAA should do is also what other aviation authorities should continue to do. Be open, honest, and transparent about how they make their policies. So uh, when the FAA changes its mind, it's because it, it has additional information? It depends on the situation. When it comes for to things such as travel advisories, it usually is due to additional information from sources outside of the FAA, because frankly, the FAA's job is not to monitor hotspots around the world or to make uh, intelligence assessments of military risk. That's the job of other parts of the U.S. government and of U.S. allies. But they do take all that into account. And when they do give their advice, they may not give the sources of their of their information, but they do make uh, plain what their decisions are. So uh, the situation may have been uh, dangerous for a day and a half and now is less dangerous. That's my that's my guess. And again, not knowing the internal deliberations of the FAA or the detailed information they had that might have been uh, military or for, from the intelligence community. That's the best I can do is just surmise that in the 24 or 48 hours, more information has come about that has uh, made them not as nervous about having people fly there. Aviation safety analyst Todd Curtis, uh, my guest, lots of text questions coming in. A couple of sources saying the Air Algeria flight has crashed. When does it become uh, official? And another texter wants to know if it's a good idea to put missile defenses on passenger planes. We're going to get the answers to those two questions. Text your question to aviation safety analyst Todd Curtis. Text the question to 514-800. You're listening to the Tommy Schneermacher Show on CJAD. Todd Curtis is uh, my guest. He's an aviation safety analyst from airsafe.com. Uh, what about the, that question? Should we put missile defenses on passenger planes? Well, that has been explored at various times in the past, and it was rejected for by the FAA and other organizations for a variety of reasons, uh, one of them being uh, cost and, and effectiveness. Uh, for example, the systems that were seriously considered at one time were only against one kind of missile threat the sort of threat from portable shoulder-fired missiles that are heat-seeking. The kind of missile that's suspected to have brought down MH-17, there is no system that was under consideration for civil airliners that would have protected that aircraft against that kind of missile. What are the risks uh, right now for any plane flying over Ukraine? Well, the biggest risk is from the instability of the situation. Uh, clearly, we have one situation where Although the area was considered to be safe for commercial airliners, that was not the case. Uh, there are parts of the Ukraine where, on a regular basis, even since the downing of Flight MH17, that aircraft, military aircraft, have been shot down by, one would presume, the uh, separatist rebels in eastern Ukraine. So clearly there is a technology in place that's willing to be used that can bring down airplanes. Now, whether or not this will affect other parts of Ukraine, it's hard to say. It's a situation that could be changing on a day-to-day -day basis. So for the time being, that part of Eastern Europe is probably a very, uh, not, not an advisable place for a commercial airliner to fly.
This texture saying missile defenses on commercial planes. What a wasted expense. A perfect example. Pure optics. Uh, no a tangible uh, benefit. People willing to pay three, four, five times the price of a ticket just because there's an extremely minute chance a threat could be realized. Uh, this should They should be more concerned about their drive to and from the airport. What would you say to that texture? Well, I would make that a broader sort of question. When it comes to any risk in aviation, and actually this is a policy, a process that's supplied in many technologies. When it comes to any risk, you have to balance the cost of saving a life uh, for one kind of risk versus another. Missiles against aircraft is one of many, many risks aer- airplanes face. As a, a civil aviation authority, they often have to choose which one of these threats do we address. And in the U.S., the decision-making is usually along the lines of which is the most cost-effective means of reducing risk. The answer is not we can't do it because it costs money. The answer is we have to do something. Let's pick the things that are most efficient and effective and start on those first. This texture wants to ask your guess about the WestJet flight. It had other engines, but it landed due to mechanical issues. Could it still have flown? Well, I'm not familiar with that particular event, but in, in general... When there's a a situation where there's a malfunction or other emergency on board the aircraft, uh, whether or not that aircraft continues on to its destination or lands at the first available airport is uh, a combination of what that threat is, what the capability of that aircraft is, and whether or not uh, continued flight might put the aircraft into greater uh, levels of risk. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. You've been very informative. Uh, From airsafe.com, aviation safety analyst Todd Curtis has been our guest. For more information about Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 and MH370, please visit 777.airsafe.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.